Kate, hello. Hi, Daniel. How's it going? Uh, it's it's going well. Our our producer told us to to be peppy, so I I was just very peppy. Yeah, I you know I just been pounding coffee. <laughs> We're recording earlier in the morning than we normally do. Um, so yeah, hey, welcome to uh, Hot and Bothered. It's a podcast on climate politics in the time of coronavirus. We are hosted by Descent Magazine, and our producer is Colin Kinnebura. This week, we are talking to Billy Fleming, who is the director of the McCarg Center at Penn. That's the University of Pennsylvania. And an overall Green New Deal thought leader, a word we do not use lightly on this show. Absolutely not. No, we do not use it lightly. We hardly use it at all, in fact. Yeah, to our credit, you know, it's, it's probably the one and only time we'll, we will use it. <laughs> Unless we have Malcolm Gladwell on the show, in which case that is legally what you have to call him. Yeah. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. It's written into the, um, what, what are those called? The, the not writer. the contract. The, it's the writer. Exactly. Yeah. Well, but, but Billy is, Billy is the thought leader and he is my, my work husband. Um, it's gotta be said, we do tons of stuff, uh, together, uh, around the Green New Deal at Penn and, and, and so on. Um, and it's also, I think, relevant to this conversation, and we'll, we'll get into it in the interview with him. He worked uh, several years ago with the Obama administration's uh, White House Domestic Policy Council and actually didn't come up in the interview, but he's played a, a pretty leading role in Indivisible um, as well. So tons of, of political experience um, in addition and, and policy experience in addition to the thought leadership. Um, and, you know, th- I think this is important because part of what we want to talk about with Billy is, you know, based on his understanding of how... Uh, a democratic administration might actually work. What are those pressure points uh, during this campaign that the the left should be hitting? You know, what are the most effective forms of pressure that Green New Dealers can bring to bear on the Biden campaign so that we actually uh, get somewhere if he is elected? Yeah, and I think what, what Billy really fleshes out is that um, there's just such a, a rich ecosystem of work required to get anything like the Green New Deal done. So, you know, both the sort of movements really pressuring from the outside, um, you know, having people who are responsive to that in elected office. And I think what he what he sort of goes into uh, excitingly in the interview is is the need to have people uh, doing the, you know, extremely unsexy work of being sort of mid-level administrators um, with with, you know, good good values and who have their eye on the prize of decarbonization. That's right. Yes. And yet, he, and he also still puts it into the, the sexier context of how, like, literally, as he puts it, every square inch of the planet is is designed. So we really get that nice big picture view, the historical view of the New Deal, and the kind of nuts and bolts of, uh, of everyday policymaking. So we can't wait to get to the interview. But first, we did want to touch on a, a tiny bit of the week's news. And, you know, one piece that that struck me as a, as a piece of really nice news uh, coming out of the Northeast is New York State has finally for the third and final time, rejected the Williams pipeline. So this is a pipeline that was supposed to carry natural gas fracked in Pennsylvania to, to Brooklyn, Queens, and Long Island. And the gas company, National Grid, had claimed that the outer boroughs were running out of gas, needed this fracked gas pipeline. Um, and you know, New York says it can meet the need with renewables. But this is actually, you know, it's, it's a big development. And for folks who haven't been following, there's been a lot of back and forth on this pipeline. And, and one of the Things that happened is that last year there was a moratorium on new gas hookups. National Grid was trying to put some pressure on um, on ratepayers and, and on, on state government. And so, you know, I think there's a lot we could say about this. But the first thing I would just want to pop out 
is if we're if we are now going to see uh, the dwindling supplies of natural gas um, because of the success of, of activism, then we also need to have at the same time a really big push on home retrofits and in particular electrification of low-income homes. Um, if if we don't do that, then the gas prices are just going to go up and up and up, reflecting that scarcity. Now is the time when we have to be getting uh, electric heat pumps and and more insulation into low-income homes so that they don't sort of shoulder the burden of increasingly scarce and expensive natural gas. But on the contrary, the the green transition to clean, comfortable, affordable homes starts in, in low-income communities, working-class communities, uh, communities of color. Yeah, I think that's that's totally right on. And I admire, uh, I think this is particularly relevant to the to this story, but um, admire your ability, Daniel, to bring everything back to back to housing um, as it as it is, you know, it, it, everything is, is in, in some way related to that. Yeah, well, look, you follow um, the yeah. capital, you follow the carbon. Where do they take you? Land. The housing. They, they take you to housing. And and just got to call out, I mean, my analysis here is, is really comes from the conversations I've had with the New York Communities for Change, which cannot say enough about this organization. Uh, powerful, you know, uh, community grassroots led organization uh, in New York, in New York State. Um really led by working class people and people of color um, and has really combined climate justice organizing with racial and economic justice and housing justice organizing. Just a, a real model, I think, um, uh, for the country and, and, and you know, really the world of, of how to do um, the kind of the work on the ground that others of us will come in and say, ah, that's the Green New Deal in action. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, you know, there's a lot of talk in, in kind of climate circles about the importance of market signals. I mean, people talk about a carbon tax, um, but shutting down a natural gas pipeline is a very powerful market signal uh, and, you know, forces companies like National Grid to figure out, you know, <laughs> how to do something else or uh, potentially, you know, not be a gas company uh, in, in in that case. And then, you know, I think puts pressure on, uh, on the sort of uh, people who design housing uh, to, to figure out what, what solutions can look like. I think Christmas just came early, Kate, because that is my favorite talking point. And it's not just a talking point, it's an analysis. I mean, it's just fundamentally true. The idea that only a expert approved, you know, carbon tax can produce a market signal. Actually, you know, uh, organizers and activists and community members as have been happening in New York, you know, putting their bodies on the line and, and using every you know, tool in the toolbox to block fossil fuel extraction and to block the the transportation of fossil fuels, that really reshapes the market, um, just exactly as, as, as you were saying. Yeah. Shame. Shame on William Nordhouse. <laughs> Can you say that a little louder? <laughs> uh, it's, it's a real, you know, egg in the face of, of Yale economist and Nobel Prize winner. William Nordhouse, who popularized the idea of a carbon tax. That's right. Same the same William Nordhouse who said that it was economically optimal for three and a half degrees Celsius of uh, global warming, which, needless to say, would be massively devastating to billions of people in the world. Trash. <laughs> um, we've got to mention one other news development or, or sort of news story, um, and you've just written a great piece that came out uh, Tuesday morning, Kate, on. Again, you know, picking up on analysis from your previous week, the thinking about how the Democratic Party campaign in the fall can make really solid um, promises, pledges, and and kind of get going on projects 
to bring jobs that aren't uh, coal extraction jobs into uh, coal extraction regions and and just more more broadly um, bring a new world of dignified, decent, really well paid work into parts of the country where um, the right and the Republicans and the oil industry would have you have you believe that fossil fuels are the only game in town. Yeah, we've talked a little bit about the broad theme of a just transition away from fossil fuels on on this show before. And the thing I, I, I just really wanted to point out in the piece is that, you know, the places that are losing a lot of, of these jobs and are being, you know, harder hit in, in, in some cases than, than the rest of the economy uh, are battleground states, right? I mean, places like Texas are facing up to a million uh, job losses in oil field services alone, which doesn't even count sort of proper drill rig jobs. Uh, you know, there are jobs being just hemorrhaged in places like Pennsylvania, Colorado, Ohio, New Mexico, Virginia. And it, I think, you know, would would behoove Democrats and Democratic leadership to um, have something like a plan uh, for people who are are losing their jobs. And, you know, I don't, I, I'm not particularly attached to, to what that gets called, but um, that there are just so many jobs uh, in, in places that have historically uh, extracted fossil fuels. I mean, we, we, we talked a bit about geothermal last week, which uses the same expertise. Um, there's a basically unlimited number of jobs in weatherization programs, which there you know, are existing programs through the Department of Energy and the USDA uh, that can be expanded. There's just so much low-hanging fruit that can put people to work in you know, very dignified work that, that pays very well. And it's just baffling to me that there's not a, a, a plan on offer, you know, of any, of any sort, even I think for more kind of progressive, um, voices in Congress, uh, and certainly nothing from coming out of, of Joe Biden's campaign that I've, that I've seen at least. Um, and meanwhile, you know, these jobs aren't coming back, right? The coal, coal jobs are not, um, going to kind of roar back, uh, to, to where they were, you know, and, and even 2013 as recently as that. So I just think, you know, give it a shot. You know, absolutely, Kate. And you know, we didn't actually get into this in the in the conversation with Billy, but he and Mark Paul, who is a great economist um, uh, who works with Data for Progress in Roosevelt uh, and, and teaches at New College Florida, um, they wrote a, a great op-ed in Forbes recently, uh, arguing for a sort of permanent stimulus um, of uh, several points of GDP every single year until the economy is fully decarbonized. And unemployment is below, you know, three and a half percent. So the idea, you know, that we have to accept high unemployment is, is just wrong. And of course, this is one of the errors of the Obama stimulus was to not use tools like direct government hiring to ensure that folks have jobs. But we absolutely have the funds, and as you were pointing out, Kate, the work that needs to be done uh, to provide those jobs. And especially if you think about things like building retrofits, instead of seeing it as just a one or two year uh, blip, but as a kind of 20, 30 year effort to retrofit the entire country's building stock, then those aren't just jobs or careers. I mean, that's that's really uh, a lifetime of work moving up ladders of skill and responsibility and um, really doing impressive stuff. I mean, folks working in that field will be working at the cutting edge of green technology um, for decades. Yeah, exactly. There's just so, there's so much there and so much, you know, so many missed opportunities right now. Yeah. The, Jobs guarantee. I mean, that that stuff is pulling better and better with every week of the coronavirus. I mean, there, like, unemployment could reach twenty percent. <laughs> like, this is the highest unemployment rate we've had since the Great Depression. And to 
think that, you know, we just can't consider the prospect of the government becoming an employer of last resort is frankly kind of crazy, right? We've done this before. We know how to do it. I mean, the, the government hires uh, a ton of people every 10 years to do the census. Like, it's not like we don't know how to do this stuff in some fundamental level. And so I, I think, you know, that's an idea whose, whose time has come, I guess. Again, has come again. That is 100% correct. So um, let's move towards this interview. Before we get there, um, I want to say we are counting on listener support to make this podcast possible. We, of course, recognize that not all of our listeners are able to contribute financially. Um, obviously, uh, that's just the nature of a gigantic jobs crisis. If you are able to contribute, if your income is protected, if you're in that lucky position, please head over to patreon.com slash hotbotheredclimate uh, to sign up. You know, we're using the, the Patreon to support the production costs of this podcast and to cover the wages of our um, freelance producer, Colin Kinnebra. So we, we are absolutely counting on, on that support from those of you who are able, who have protected uh, income to keep this podcast going. Yeah, and, and like Daniel said, I mean, even just a few a few bucks can make a difference. And if you uh, do pitch in at that amount, you'll get some great perks like uh, monthly happy hour, the book we co-wrote with Alyssa Battistoni and Theoria Frankus, and a digital subscription to Descent Magazine. Uh, so you know, if you're if you're one of those lucky people who can contribute, um, we'd be grateful if you could pause this show right now before we get to our excellent interview with Billy Fleming. And head to patreon.com slash hotbotheredclimate. That's patreon.com slash hotbotheredclimate to pitch in. You know, even for, for $3 a month, um, you can not just get the warm glow of knowing that our freelance producer is, is being paid, but um, the warm uh, liquid glow of our company at our next uh, happy hour uh, on June 9th. So um, as Kate said, it's patreon.com slash hotbotheredclimate. And we'd be really grateful as well if you could help us spread the word about the show, which you can do for free. So you can rate and review us on iTunes or your podcast platform of choice. And please get in touch. We'd love to hear any feedback, suggestions for guests, etc. You can tweet us using the hashtag hotbotheredclimate or email us at hot.bothered.climate at gmail.com. So without further ado, let's get into our conversation with Billy Fleming. Billy is the Wilkes Family Director of the Ian L. McCarg Center at the Weitzman School of Design at the University of Pennsylvania. And most importantly, he is really one of the leading voices on Green New Deal design ideas in the landscape architecture profession in particular, and the design professions more generally. Uh, And if that wasn't enough. He has been a guest co-host of Hot and Bothered before, actually, during our mini-series on designing the Green New Deal, which you might have heard. That's right. Um, Billy is also, as we were saying earlier, my work husband. Uh, collaborate a ton at Penn. And in addition to all of that, Billy is the editor of the forthcoming book and adaptation, Blueprint. He's the co-editor and co-curator of the book and exhibit, Design with Nature Now, the lead author of the 2100 Project, an atlas for the Green New Deal, uh, which we'll link to our show notes. He's also the co-author of the Indivisible Guide and worked for a time in the Obama administration's White House Domestic Policy Council. Um, we'll link to some of his really terrific journalistic writings, again, on our show notes, um, some of which we discuss in our interview. So, Billy, welcome back to Hot and Bothered. 
Uh, thanks for having me. It's great to chat with you for the 35th time this week, but thankfully this time on a podcast. That's right. Um, so, you know, to start us off, um, not, you know, not all our listeners have had, have had the pleasure. So we'd love to hear, you know, how your quarantine is going. But before you answer that, I think what your Twitter fans will really want to know is specifically how is your perfect dog Pepper's quarantine going? I mean, quarantine is really like the dream scenario for any dog, especially Pepper, our dog. Um, we're home all the time. Uh, she gets all of our table scraps and treats. She sleeps on our bed most nights. Um, she's just like loving it. She's asleep here at my like feet right now as we're recording this. I don't think she's gone more than like five minutes without both of us in the house in like three months. So uh, she is, you know, actively rooting for the coronavirus to continue to spread. Such interspecies solidarity between uh, between dog and virus. It is a small dog. Um, okay, so let's um, let's let's sort of anchor this conversation. Um, I think at quote unquote the beginning, at least historically speaking, the reference of the New Deal. Um, and you wrote an amazing piece in Places Magazine uh, that just took the design professions to task for how they have been involved in some very neoliberal resiliency projects in recent years, and why we need to go back to the New Deal if we want to uncover. Um, a better model. And, you know, this, I think one of the reasons why this piece made such a huge impact is that while the New Deal's social policies are pretty famous, things like Social Security, the WPA, um, which funded things like theater, and we know a lot about the racist aspects of the New Deal, like redlining, which we'll get to a bit more in a minute. Um, I think the built environment transformations aren't so well known. So I'd love to have you tell us a little bit about the built environment changes of the New Deal why they were so important. And while you tell us this, just make sure to define, you know, what or how you understand the term built environment um, in your work. Yeah, well, I might begin there. Um, also, thank you very much for like saying such nice things about that essay, because as you can imagine, in the design world got me into a little bit of trouble. Um, you know, well, there's a couple of reasons. I'll sort of start with sort of why I wrote it. One is just that you know, designers, architects, landscape architects, city planners are all trained in professional schools. So I, I'm in a you know a graduate school, it's a professional school, um, and there was absolutely zero political education in most, if not all of them. Uh, and they're really about doing two things: they're about conditioning you know students for a lifetime of exploited labor, which is why they're forced to spend all night in the studio. Any of you who've had friends in architecture school. Like one of the the campus tour talking points is always like, oh, that's the architecture school building. The lights never turn off because people are always there working. Well, this is all part of like getting you ready to go work in a private firm for a little money in which like you're treated like absolute shit by your employer. There are some nice firms, but like that's the general resting pulse. Um, and then the other is that, uh, you know, the because so much of the practice of architecture, landscape architecture, city planning are completely privatized now with a few exceptions. Uh, they're also really about training you to become sort of handmaidens for capital all over the world. And part of why, uh, you know, a company like ACOM, which is a huge architecture and engineering firm that I know you know quite well, Daniel, um, begins to, to sort of chase some of the same projects in many of the same places for some of the same people as, say, uh, McKinsey and Company is because they're both actually just like designed to do the same thing, which is to like consume capital and express power across the landscape. McKinsey does it in organizational, you know, sort of consulting. Designers do it in built environment consulting. But ultimately, a lot of the operations wind up looking the same. Um, 
But, you know, for, for most of these places, um, you know, in most of these schools of design, uh, there was really no sort of capacity to meet the moment of, you know, when this was being written in 2018 into 2019, the sort of rise of the Green New Deal, the sort of mainstreaming or sort of public awakening of, of the, the sort of left in this country back into electioneering. Um, and because designers had spent so long sort of severing the tie between themselves and those kinds of political machinations, it felt really important to write it at the moment. Now, you know, the first line in it is something like, you know, I don't know when the myth of, of landscape architects or designers as climate saviors began, but I know it's time to kill it, um, which did not make me, again, like a ton of friends um, in like the, the establishment side of the design professions. Um, but I think is part of why this piece resonated so widely, um, because there are, I mean, the pre-pandemic, um, there were, you know, a couple rising generations of designers who were finding themselves doing work that they found to be totally contradictory to their values, um, where they're in school learning about climate change and, and, you know, social justice, and then going out to design beautiful things for the rich all over the world. Um, and so this piece really spread because I think it, it sort of tapped into a, a sort of sentiment within um, the younger design world that the gap between our sort of ambitions and the reality of practice was not only just too wide to sort of reconcile, but was actually growing wider. If we want to get into like the New Deal piece of this too, I mean, I think you're, you're totally right that, you know, most people remember the New Deal for a couple of things and we see them, uh, the, the second one I'll talk about kind of bandied around a lot today, but one is social security or the sort of placeless, um, aspatial uh, pieces of it, which were hugely important. The other is uh, all of the kind of national economic mobilization that went into sort of planning for World War II. Um, and we see this reflected in some of the, the calls that are out today for something like an, a White House Office of Climate Mobilization, which I think is really dangerous. Um, but the built environment aspects of, of the New Deal, I thought were, I, I still think are incredibly important, if, if not more important than at least as important as those uh, if for no other reason than they're the primary way through which the New Deal itself was like felt and understood and realized in most of the country. And I say that because the New Deal wound up building about 55,000, uh, close to 60,000 actual physical projects all over the U.S. Uh, and it included big sort of mega regional things like the Appalachian Regional Trail. Um, and it included tiny things like, you know, uh, individual housing projects in Kentucky and West Virginia, uh, and sort of everything in between from, you know, municipal airports to uh, sanitary sewer systems to uh, recreational landscapes and our, our sort of public lands, um, cabins and parks. Uh, we wind up getting almost all of the state parks ever built in the history of the country or built or at least authorized during the New Deal. About half of the trees ever planted or 40 percent of the trees ever planted in the history of the U.S. are planted during the, the New Deal by the Civilian Conservation Corps. Many of them as part of the shelter belt in the Midwest to, to sort of abate uh, the impact of the Dust Bowl and the sort of um, wiping out uh, of the agricultural system there due to over farming or poor farming practices. Um, and you wind up with about um, 42, 43 percent of all the electric transmission infrastructure ever built in the history of this country by the Rural Electrification Administration, often in partnership with the CCC, sometimes with the PWA and WPA. And, you know, in between all of that are, are the housing and communities and, and, and parks and sidewalks and all the things that sort of stitch together where how and where we live being built uh, with funding from the New Deal. Um, and we can talk about how, you know, how that was operationalized. It wasn't like someone was sitting in D.C. in a bunker like at HUD uh, designing a plan for 
uh, the suburbs in Philadelphia and then, you know, sort of handing it off to someone to go build. It was mostly about direct transfers and, and a few other things between the Fed and state and local government. Uh, but you wind up with this just massive transformation of the built environment in the span of about a decade in the U.S. Um, that uh, touched almost every single community over about 10,000 people in the U.S. And a lot of this, not all, but a lot of this is cataloged on a, a great site called The Living New Deal. Um, there's a, a wonderful book that's a little dated now, but still is probably the best uh, sort of encapsulation of this work called The Public Landscape of the New Deal by Phoebe Cutler. It's written in kind of the mid 80s. For me, anyway, because I think we're, this is being written, this place's essay being written at the this sort of um, reintroduction of the Green New Deal into public consciousness. Uh, its central reference is the New Deal. And for me to think about, you know, if and how design fits into that conversation, it was really important to take that central reference seriously and to ask, um, you know, what can we learn from a built environment perspective about the ways in which the New Deal transformed how and where we live and how might we think about, you know, building some of that learning into the Green New Deal. Yeah, I, I want to dig in a, a bit more on that because I, I think there's a there's a tension for folks, uh, especially in the sort of progressive left end of things when we talk about the New Deal, um, because on the one hand, as you were just you know really laying out, this helped build the United States welfare system as we know it, electrified rural America, saved probably you know millions of people from from starvation and, and abject poverty. Uh, and and you know transformed our built environment uh, in in really dramatic dramatic ways. At the same time, the New Deal also gave us things like redlining. Many of its programs excluded sharecroppers and domestic workers, and it it, it struck a bargain. The the sort of basic political bargain of the of the New Deal was with Southern Democrats um, to you know at the at the core not fundamentally disturb Jim Crow uh, in in the South. And you know I'm thinking of um, some of the most you know, vocal advocates of public power uh, were were also you know really staunchly opposed to anti-lynching bills, for instance. You know, so I'm I'm wondering, you know, how how do you hold these two things in tension and and really take you know what what I I think are are um, very positive, some very positive lessons from the New Deal, and 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 really think about that, you know, and the kind of full complexity of what what the the, the long scope of the New Deal um, really looked like. Yeah, I mean, that's such an important point because the New Deal tends to get romanticized like everything else in the political imagination of the U.S. Um, and this is one of the things that worries me a lot about all of the references to the Tennessee Valley Authority, which I'll, I'll circle back to in just a minute. But uh, Daniel and I have a great colleague here at Penn, Brett Siebel, who has been writing about this for a while. And, you know, I think the the thing to remember about the New Deal as we think about the kind of coalition that might make a Green New Deal possible uh, it's just, I think, to your point, Kate, exactly how much it relied on stitching together a coalition of um, sort of liberal, liberal-ish Northern Republicans uh, and Democrats and Southern Dixiecrats. And because the New Deal itself relied so much on local implementation, I think contra to a lot of the, the sort of myths about it as this huge top-down centrally planned endeavor, it was actually like almost entirely devolved to state and local government, and in some cases to chambers of commerce and other NGOs at the time that existed. Uh, all it really did was reify all of the conditions you found on the ground in the places where it was working or operating uh, at the time. So, you know, in the Jim Crow South, the New Deal itself was weaponized to entrench and exacerbate all of the worst aspects of the, the Jim Crow South. And, you know, in other parts of the country where um, you know, redlining still existed um, and was very much like still in favor. New Deal was often weaponized to make um, 
you know, the, the sort of spatial segregation of the time uh, firmer and stronger um, and to build sort of political coalitions through the, the transfer of funding to state and local government and to NGOs um, to put a particular ruling class into power. And I mentioned the TVA because certainly in the design world, but also, I mean, you're, you're writing, I don't know, like your eighth book now about the energy system. Um, you know, the TVA is often, has often been held up as a kind of exemplar of what public power can do. I think obviously that has changed a lot in the public power movement, but it is still referenced a lot by designers as like evidence of what beautiful central centralized planning can do because, uh, it was run by an architect and a landscape architect. So that you know, architects and landscape architects love to self-mythologize. So they're like, look, like we're great. You can tell because the TVA is great. Um, one of the things that they don't talk about, right, is that the TVA itself, um, because it was built uh, in a part of the country where the Jim Crow um, sort of where Jim Crow was still very much in effect, still very much uh, becoming more powerful, um, that it actually wound up building in a lot of the same kind of spatial segregation you'd find in the Tennessee Valley pre-New Deal. And I'm going to just pull a quick quote from Brent here uh, in a book, or excuse me, in a, an essay he wrote. Uh, in the Journal of American History, where he says, despite Black residents constituting over 7% of the population around Norris, this is the Norris Dam, the TVA, that made up just 1.9% of the workers who qualified for TVA jobs. Uh, electrification promised significant improvements in standards of living for some rural Americans, but the pernicious inequities of Jim Crow were left largely untouched. And you can see this in the actual facilities of the TVA as well, where they literally had segregated black and white uh, restrooms, water fountains, all kinds of facilities. Um, and so, again, I think like the, the big the big um, worry that I have in hearing about some of these sort of repackaged New Deal ideas from folks who probably haven't spent a lot of time reading New Deal history uh, is that they're actually going to reproduce a lot of the worst aspects of it and not the best. And so um, the New Deal itself, like there are lots of lessons to learn about mobilizing a national government and economy. Um, lots of, I think, lessons to learn about how power can be structured or restructured through the formation of partnerships that can only be made possible by huge infusions of federal money. Um, but if we aren't thinking seriously about and purposefully about what kind of power we want and how to design those big national programs to restructure it in ways that are more egalitarian and just than the ones that we got during the New Deal, um, that we're only going at best to sort of repeat or rehash all of the worst parts of the New Deal. Uh, and at worst, we're going to set ourselves up for failure and absolutely zero implementation um, because people, I think the word is out for most people on what the New Deal got right and what it got wrong. And I can't imagine activists sort of sitting by idly and waiting for this thing to be sort of reproduced uh, in space and place the same way it was in the 1930s. Yeah, I I want to push you a little bit um, on, on some of the stuff you brought up. And I think this is... Uh, not necessarily what you were arguing, but something I've heard a lot from folks in the energy wonk space is that, you know, you will point, I think rightfully so, um, to the the present of, of the kind of New Deal public power institutions, both the Tennessee Valley Authority and, uh, and rural electric cooperatives and say, you know, these institutions are so staid and bureaucratic and um, have become, you know, so ossified and are so resistant to change. Um, and this is why public power is bad. Mm -hmm. Right. And I think there, there's this, you know, long legacy coming out of um, coming out of the reaction to the new deal um, that, that really uh, cast a lot of doubt on the public sector. Um, and I, I you know, I, I just don't really hear that from talking to folks who are 
running campaigns uh, to make the TVA and the rural electric cooperatives better, right? I think there's an ability that folks who engage with these institutions on an everyday basis have to, to really live in the complexity of it, right? Um, you know, people's grandparents who remember the TVA gave their grandparents a job. Um, obviously that, you know, cuts, cuts very differently across, across race. And, um, people just, you know, I think can handle that complexity better than I've heard, um, you know, some folks in the, in the kind of energy, (laughs) energy want community, um, be able to do that. So, so yeah, I'm just, I'm just wondering, you know, uh, how do you hold a sort of, um, real hope and, and kind of the, the, promise of the public sector and kind of the the role of, of having you know government uh do something and and not um and, and be able to critique sort of where um the real you know huge flaws of these programs are um without kind of giving into um what can be often very right-wing talking points about um you know how how inherently sort of flawed public programs are yeah that, that's a great point i think to raise and i think you know, energy wonks, and I'm thinking of like the quantitative side of this now, are very good at think, measuring things like electrons and molecules, so like electricity and carbon. Um, less so on like thinking about governance. And I don't mean that as like a slight to them at all, but like it's not something you're trained to do in an energy engineering, you know, program or in the field as you're out practicing. And for these kinds of questions, I think you're right that like, Folks who are connected in very real ways, either because they are directly, um, they're receiving electricity from a rural co-op, they're on the board of their co-op, they've otherwise just sort of interfaced with their co-op over the years or any other public utility, are much better suited to think about like the the governance structure of the political economy um, than folks who are, you know, wearing um, very expensive suits and sitting in Ivy League uh, energy centers, thinking about like whether or not public power uh, is a viable solution or not. And I think, you know, the anti-public power advocates tend to point to the TVA, TVA a lot as an example of the failure of public power. And they do that, I think, quite disingenuously because uh, the, the sort of central talking point there is that, you know, the TVA is evidence that public power is bad because its fuel mix is bad. It burns a lot more coal than the median utility in the U.S. Um, and they sort of stop their argument there without acknowledging that the biggest reason for that is the governance side of the TBA is comprised primarily of people who are appointed by statewide elected officials in the Tennessee Valley. Anyone who knows anything about the Tennessee Valley knows that the the political economy of the region is built heavily on fossil fuel and in particular coal, um, and that for you to ascend to statewide office within the region, you essentially have to have a direct connection to the fossil fuel or coal industry. Uh, whether you literally worked in it, whether your campaign was floated primarily by contributions from its execs or members, or you just have some other sort of fealty towards the industry, uh, much of the Tennessee Valley itself is organized around coal and fossil fuels. And so we shouldn't be surprised when statewide elected officials uh, appoint people to govern the TVA who possess the same sort of fealty towards the fossil fuel and coal industries. And then, of course, once they do that, we shouldn't be surprised that the utility itself burns more coal and fossil fuels than the median utility in the country. And one of the reasons I think pointing to the TVA only or primarily is quite a mistake for public power advocates and for designers and for other folks. Um, And not that rural electric co-ops or the TVA or any other public utility are perfect. They're reflections of the the sort of uh, actually existing politics of the places in which they, they live. 
Um, but they do offer us avenues for change that private utilities and private electric uh, companies do not. Um, there is no ability to um, overwhelm a private utility or private energy or electricity provider um, through grassroots organizing, through elections, through any of the other sort of tools at our disposal. Um, and you can't say the same about the public sector. Those are the places where um, actual small d democracy has an ability to transform institutions. And while I would, you know, I think you all, right, wrote something to the effect in your book, A Planet to Win, about how um, as much as you would like to transform capitalism overnight, you don't suspect it happening quite that fast or quite like in the next 10 years. Um, so thinking about what a Green New Deal can do to restructure power, I think is exactly how this has to work as well. We have to think about the actual institutions we already have. We probably will need to build some new ones, but we don't have to build all new ones. And, you know, for, in my mind, rural electric co-ops, public utilities are some of the most important institutions for taking us um, on the path to net zero. That's only going to be possible when we invest both in like their ability to provide cleaner and cheap energy to their um, ratepayers. And it's only going to be possible when we invest in more organizing in and around uh, the places that they serve. Um, those are things you can actually do to move public utilities and, and co-ops that you can't do for any of the private sector ones. So, Billy, this has been really fascinating. I think we've been kind of dancing back and forth between the political economy piece and the sort of built environment analysis, right, of how we have to physically constructing these energy landscapes. Um, and I, I want to lean in uh, even more um, on that. And to kick us off there, there's a section um, we asked you to prepare to, to read from your recent Jacobin essay, um, which was really terrific. And uh, if you don't mind just reading out the section, it's a few paragraphs, but I think it puts it puts the issue so well. And then I want to ask you a, a question about it. Great. Yeah, happy to do that. Uh, every square inch of our planet is designed. The roads on which we drive, the parks in which we play, the homes and neighborhoods in which we live and work, the often invisible water, energy, communication, and food system infrastructures all represent policy decisions um, made by capitalist imaginaries and translated into concrete reality by designers. We have also literally re-engineered, often unintentionally, the planet's ecological systems to suit the whims of a few wealthy nations and their ruling classes in the global north. We have terraformed the planet through the extractive logics of colonialism and capitalism. The creeping Sahel in North Africa, the dissolving glaciers of Greenland, and the sinking shorelines of Bangladesh are all products of this planetary capitalist project. The designers that have helped to make all this happen have often been talented, earnest members of the professional managerial class. As a result, they're often beholden to their wealthy clients and largely disinterested in joining political struggles against neoliberal misery and the resulting climate emergency. As Bjarke Ingels' recent collaboration with Gerald Bolsonaro makes clear, designers tend to go where capital flows. And yet, we probably cannot stabilize the climate without transforming the design professions. Thank you. It's it's such a great a kind of such an incredible encapsulation of a political economy analysis of climate change um, and the role, you know, this essential role of the design professions, which I think, as you point out, they're educated in a different silo in the university. And though we, I think most of us who've been through the universities know those kids who never go to sleep and wear cooler clothes at the same time, amazingly. But, um, you know, it's, it's, it's not a field, I think, that we know super well, um, at least those of us in the, in the social sciences. So um, I, I want to hear you talk a little bit about how you see design profession having to play a different role um, today. And I want to 
point you in, in particular on, on a couple topics. And first, um, in terms of land policies, you know, you and I, along with nine other people, helped to write this green stimulus letter to Congress saying we need, you know, a green investment to pull us out of this recession. And you're, you know, especially focused um, on, a, on a, some certain parts of it, including lands policy. Like, how do you see what does the design profession have to do differently to have a more sustainable relationship with um, the land? Uh, what do you see as the kind of path forward there? Yeah, well, the path forward is very long and hard. Um, I think, you know, this is where the New Deal reference itself can become quite useful. And in, I mentioned Phoebe Cutler's book, Pub, The Public Landscape of the New Deal, a few few moments ago, where she has this great chart uh, sort of at the beginning of the book where she goes in and sort of lays out what she goes on to call the design bureaucracy. And this, these are all the places in which, um, you know, designers, landscape architects, architects, planners went to work within the footprint of the federal government during uh, the Great Depression. And, you know, we often, I think, think of uh, the CCC and a lot of these manual labor jobs as like the core employment aspect of the New Deal. And I think it's probably true. Certainly more people were employed there. But there was also a huge white collar PMC employment program that often sort of gets ignored in those conversations. Because like we're sort of experiencing today in which no one essentially, you know, in the architecture and engineering world can go to an office. Most of them are furloughing a lot of employees. Some are closing firms altogether. And the response during the New Deal was to say, okay, we have 20,000 out-of-work designers, really talented designers who've been mostly doing the same kind of work they're doing today, which is designing, you know, beautiful things for, for private clients. Um, why don't we put them to work building up the public land and green infrastructure of the U.S.? And we'll house them in the National Park Service, uh, the U.S. Forest Service, uh, all of these other sort of alphabet agencies that were constituted to go in and, and build and implement and design a lot of these projects. Um, and it was the first and perhaps only time really in U.S. history in which the link between um, sort of private capital and the design professions was at least partially severed because you had many of these people moving out of the private sector and into public employment um, and going and along the way, building up most of the uh, designing, planning, constructing most of the projects we now associate with the New Deal. And in some cases that was happening like on the fly, uh, a designer or an architect would be sent to a site. Um, said, tomorrow we have to build this thing, give the workers uh, who are coming to the site or if they're in the CCC in the camp next door, um, plans that they can build with hand tools. Um, and it forced them to be really creative about the way um, that they approach you know, design problems. Um, because designers tend to think about things in the most complex way possible and then to drive up the cost of construction and all kinds of other things as they do it. The thing the New Deal sort of forced them to do was to think as simply as possible uh, and to, to design things very quickly that could be built on the fly with hand tools by people um, sort of out there in, in the rural parts of the U.S. Now, it wouldn't work exactly that way now, um, but this is, again, I think an important part of, a, of the conversation about our response to both COVID-19, um, a green stimulus, and thinking through, thinking about it as a kind of down payment on a Green New Deal, is how do we how do we fill this huge gap in you know, essentially white collar employment where you do have a bunch of talented designers and engineers, again, who are out of work, um, who will literally do anything that they get paid to do. I think Jim Goodman is always fond of saying farmers will grow what they're paid to grow. So why not ask them to grow something besides corn for ethanol in the Midwest? The same is true for designers. Designers will design what they're paid to design. And this moment presents a unique opportunity to ask them to do things differently, to stop building high lines and private gardens um, and luxury real estate development projects, uh, and to ask them instead to build more egalitarian things. 
I want to ask you to, you know, get specific about um, about one of these aspects, which I know you've you've written a lot about, um, which is transit. Uh, speaking of of the need for more egalitarian infrastructures, um, so you've co-led research with the Transit Center, Data for Progress, and several others on a Green New Deal for transit and cities. So, so how does uh, transit policy look different under a Green New Deal, um, and how do planners have to plan that differently? Yeah, that's a a great question. Um, You know, a lot of these things are not like the sexy projects that people associate with like infrastructure or design. There's not like some huge new bridge, huge new roadway, huge new tunnel, whatever that like a local politician is going to show up and cut a ribbon at. A lot of it is like the very unsexy but very important work of clearing a maintenance backlog and and, and, um, clearing a maintenance and repair backlog that's been sitting on the books for a very long time. And I'll just say quickly on the transportation side, a big reason for this is that almost all of the federal funding that comes through USDOT to state departments of transportation uh, is set aside for new capital projects and primarily for new highway capital projects, um, which forces state departments of transportation and cities to build a bunch of new highways that no one in particular wants, um, that don't actually employ all that many people, and that lock in, set us on a sort of path-dependent outcome towards higher carbon emissions. And so thinking about what the transportation system would look like in a Green New Deal, I think is has to be geared towards sort of stemming uh, or turning off that fossil fuel complex um, spigot. And I'm thinking about, you know, the extension, the sort of endless expansion of highways into Exerbia as a product of both like the, the, the sort of building, national home building industry, who is constantly, who are constantly looking for uh, new suburbs and exurbs to build to sort of send people out to. Uh, I'm thinking of the fossil fuel industry in, in particular, also who are looking for uh, ways to get people in their car, driving longer, burning more fuel. And the only way that we can really think about shutting off that valve is to ask or force the Department of Transportation to redirect all of its funding, in at least first, into um, maintenance and repair projects. This has been, we, we point to it in the letter, it's been pointed to by other folks at Transport, Transportation for America, Smart for America, a few others, as the fix it first mandate which would require uh, all state departments of transportation to clear their maintenance and repair backlog before they build a single new capital project. They've called for other things too, like actually equalizing the balance between uh, highway and transit uh, construction projects. Right now it's about 80-20 highway versus transit. Um, And so I think like at a high level, those are the most important things. At like the actual project level, these maintenance and repair projects are, are things that like are often invisible to people. So Positive train control, the thing that keeps trains from derailing, we actually don't have a ton of in the U.S. relative to the rest of the world. So like actually making our trains safer um, that already run and and hopefully running more of them is a huge part of this. Um, Clearing the sort of ADA backlog at all of our stations. So it doesn't, you know, someone who's using a wheelchair or otherwise like unable to to sort of ascend and descend stairs in the same way that I might be able to um, isn't forced to take like this, this horrific, like back, uh, back entry, back door that takes forever to get up and down and to and from their train or bus. Um, these are like things that don't get a ton of attention that are hugely important to sort of driving up and sustaining ridership. Um, and they also happen to put more people to work. You get something like 15% more jobs per dollar spent on these kinds of maintenance and repair projects versus new capital projects. Great. That that's so helpful. And, you know, it's great to hear you talk, um, Billy and Grant, you know, to go to kind of tack back and forth between this big picture vision of the relationship, you know, between the design professions and capitalism, um, and of course, then the granular detail of what we need to do. 
the problem, obviously, um, as is pointed out by the big picture of political economic analysis, is that logic alone isn't enough to get things good things done in American politics. So I think, you know, Kate and I want to spend some time on, you know, your experience in the policy world and how do we actually get the good things done and what can we learn from what hasn't worked recently? You worked um, for some time in President Obama's White House Domestic Policy Council. Um, Mm -hmm. So you've not just read Politico and Vox and watched (laughs) The West Wing, but you've been inside of uh, a progressive administration. What did you learn um, as a really critically minded person on the inside of the Domestic Policy Council that um, folks who are just, you know, looking at this from the outside might not, you know, understand about how things go down under a, a democratic administration? Yeah, well, there were a few things. I, I would say, too, like, I don't want to pretend like I was some high-level person there. I was not. Um, I was, like, as junior as you can be. Um, but I think there were a couple, right? And I'll try to connect these to some of the the sort of ways that I think about, the ways that I think people um, are, are sort of missing the mark in contemporary conversations about this as we gear up for um, November 2020, or at least what a, a Biden administration might, might be able to do. The first is around elite persuasion and this idea that, like, big data... Uh, is going to lead to like transformational politics, um, the sort of like fundamental technocratic orientation towards policy development um, that we hear and see a lot at places like Vox and Politico. I think you mentioned them. Those are partially because um, those are like the hubs for this kind of thinking. And I think it's like a very earnest belief amongst the folks who, who push those kinds of ideas. I also think it's like completely ludicrous. For anyone who's spent time uh, in any of those offices, I mean, I worked with lots of like very earnest and great people in the DPC, um, but most of them are not subject matter experts. Like you don't run a policy council and have um, like deep command of the energy system the way that, um, you know, someone at MIT running a giant energy center might. These are people with like law degrees or political science degrees who've worked in politics professionally for a very long time and are very good at the kind of political negotiation side of things less good at sort of, I think, understanding, consuming, um, really, really really thinking seriously about the trade-offs between the kind of big data that tends to get churned out of the climate and energy space. Um, so that's one. I, not that those things don't matter, but they're a small piece of the, the sort of puzzle when we think about what gets us from where we are today to a future world that's rebuilt by the Green New Deal. And speaking of that, um, I was wondering, you know, we, we, have a chance to take another swing at an economic recovery now, um, you know, 10 years roughly on from the last one. And, and uh, some of the, some of those same people look uh, very eager to get their jobs back as you've, as you've noted, um, you know, and especially if, if, if Biden wins this fall, there's been a, a lot of talk about what shaping his, his, uh, his team looks like and in, in particular, his transition team. Um, and there, there's been a, a controversy about um, the economist Larry Summers and his role in the campaign. And, and now there's all this debate about the Biden-Bernie task force. So, you know, zeroing in on an eventual Biden administration and, and knowing, you know, what you know from the Domestic Policy Council, um, what would you say are the most important pressure points uh, during this, this phase of the campaign? Yeah, this is such an important question. We're going to be coming back to it, I'm sure, like every single day for the next five months or so. Um, but I think there are a couple. Um, and the first is just to like recognize that, you know, PDFs, campaign plans, tweets are like not policy. That sounds really silly to like say out loud, but that is generally like the theory of change being enacted across much of the sort of professional left right now that sort of, you know, 
biggest move we can make is to get Joe Biden to like make his climate plan better on paper. But don't do anything to the personnel. Don't do anything to the the man. But just like have a better PDF, have a better campaign site, do some good tweets, say maybe something in a, a sort of live a Facebook live event or something. And like that's that's going to set us on the path towards something like the Green New Deal under Joe Biden. Um, I think, you know, that's that's kind of farcical, but that's that's where a lot of folks I think they're moving right now um, and doing that, doing so, I think, in large part because um, either they weren't around in 2008 for a lot of these same fights. Um, not that that disqualifies you from being involved in them now, but I think the other piece of that is that many of them, I think, have refused to learn some of the lessons from 2008 and 9. Um, and so we see ourselves repeating a lot of the same mistakes. Um, the other is that, uh, and I think this is actually the much more important piece, is um, demanding personnel changes from the Biden administration or the Biden campaign at the moment. Uh, and Kate, I know you wrote a great piece about this, um, talking about Heather Zeichel in particular, but some other folks uh, within the sort of Biden economic and climate world. Um, you mentioned Larry Summers just a moment ago, but Heather Zeichel is, is someone who I think is also incredibly dangerous to have around Joe Biden at the moment. You're talking about you know, one of the principal architects of um, the Obama administration's all all of the above energy strategy, um, the idea of natural gas as a, a bridge fuel or a bridge to the future. Um, she, you know, unsurprisingly went on to make tons of money working for Chenier, uh, a natural gas company, um, after she left the administration and is now back in Biden's inner circle and very well positioned to steer climate energy policy within a future Biden administration. And this is where, you know, getting... A, a splashy or a nice um, campaign PDF that says all the right things that we wanted to say, um, but then has to be implemented by someone who is very, very tied to the fossil fuel industry and the natural gas industry is such a huge miscalculation. I think it's great to get um, sort of paper commitments from, from Biden at the moment, but the personnel commitments are far more important. And I almost, you know, if I had to choose between the two, I would be perfectly fine with him not saying another word about climate for the next five months if it meant that he purged his campaign and his future administration of everyone who's ever worked at, in any professional, you know, not out in the fields, but in a corporate office for a fossil fuel company. Um, and so for me, like, that's where the big fights are, because, you know, the, the executive office of the president has something like five or 6,000 jobs to fill that are on the political appointment side, the agencies. Um, so, you know, HUD, the Department of Transportation, EPA, Small Business Administration, all of the constellation of them that all have civilian service um, side professionals, but also get a huge influx of political appointments. Um, those are the places where like we have to like dig in and fight. Most of those positions don't require Senate confirmation. They're either Schedule C or they're just uh, another another level of appointment um, that doesn't go before the Senate. They're just sort of done by fiat by the president or by the secretary or administrator of that agency. So for me anyway, like I think there's a there's a, a very um, it's a very troublesome focus within the professional left at the moment on extracting um, demands uh, on paper uh, in the form of like campaign PDFs and on focusing uh, on this like short list of progressive cabinet you know, members, which sounds great, but actually is far less important that you get like one of your people, say, at the Department of Labor, um, but nobody else really. Um, you're not going to be able to do a whole lot if the person who is quite progressive and you know, chosen to be the Secretary of Labor is then staffed by 600 people who were sent over to the Biden campaign by cap. Um, if we're going to fill 10,000 jobs or so in a Biden administration on the political appointment side that don't require Senate confirmation, I think the much more interesting play for us is thinking about how to sneak a bunch of smart left, um, either technocrats or other sort of political operators into these places 
who can do a lot of really good quiet work within the agencies um, that won't be as high profile as, as getting who we want you know, to run one of these agencies, but that can actually do quite a bit. We, we can see some of those folks um, who've moved over to the, 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 the civilian service side in places like the Department of Energy. Uh, there's still a few with the EPA who were Obama era appointees and actually like quite far on the left in terms of like their policy orientation who are still there and doing some of this like mythical deep state work that Donald Trump was so worried about when he first got into office. So let's let's um we just have a few minutes left. Let's zoom out a tiny bit and you know I think we would all agree on this call that you know whatever happens with Biden uh you know if he wins whether he chooses a more or less progressive angle I don't think Biden is going to define the decade. You know Biden isn't an FDR who's going to serve three terms. We don't even know if he'll serve a full one term. Um I guess thinking about the the decade ahead Billy with the benefit of all this historical um, examples that we've talked about and, and also sort of the like trench fight of the next few months, you know, I guess, where do you look in terms of winning the decade of the Green New Deal? Like, what do we do right now to set ourselves up so that two, four, six years down the line, we are still moving forward in this uh, in this transition? Yeah, wow. Um, that is like an impossible question, I think, but I will try. <laughs> um, first of all, I would say, wait, Daniel, do you mean to tell me that all of these press stories about Joe Biden wanting to be FDR now are not true? Um, he doesn't actually want to be FDR. Um, no, I, I would say I'm, like... <laughs> this is a battle to know the soul of this man, and I, I don't know how it's going to go. I don't know. Yeah, I think he just woke up one day and was like, FDR sounds right. Saw a good picture of him. Want to be like that. Um, no, I. so I would say... One is to recognize that, like, the Green New Deal itself is not going to be realized in drips and drabs over the course of a decade. I think people tend to think about policy change in a sort of incremental, uh, linear fashion. Um, I think if you plot some of these things over, like, an incredibly long time period, it can appear that way. But they come in pulses. Um, they come when windows of opportunity open and we are well positioned to exploit the absolute shit out of them. Um, we were not in that position, the left, in 2009, and it's why the Obama stimulus looked uh, the way it looked. Um, that's why we got something that was too small, did too little, and had, and was geared far too much towards the, the 1%. Um, and so thinking about what, you know, a Biden stimulus, Green New Deal, economic recovery package could look like, um, I think is less exciting than thinking about what, like, might be possible the next time we get the kind of alignment uh, on the left that we had in 2009. And I'm talking about you know, having 60 votes in the Senate, having a massive majority in the House and having the presidency. Um, now, you go back and look at the members who were in part of those majorities, and like many of them are quite terrible. Many of them are out of Congress now. Um, but thinking about like the, the decade of the Green New Deal is probably being a product of one or two big windows in which we just sort of go for broke when we get the opportunity to actually do something of substance for uh, the climate movement. And it's not going to be um, like I said, it's not going to be this like slow drip of things over time. It's going to be it's going to come in a couple of big pushes and we have to be ready for those pushes. And we have to know um, because there will be lots of people saying, OK, like you have to slow down. Or you cannot do so much so fast. There will be backlash if you do it. We have to recognize that, like whatever we do, there is going to be backlash. So when we have the opportunity to wield power and exercise statecraft towards uh, the ends of a Green New Deal, that we do it as maximally as possible. Um, or, you know, if we find ourselves, let's say, in 2024 with uh, an AOC presidency um, and a you know supermajority in the Senate, uh, a huge majority in the House, 
Uh, we have to know that even if she were to, to use the presidency to, say, wield a, a bunch of power towards right wing ideas, um, she would actually, you know, we would still face a massive backlash in 2026. And so for me, anyway, I think like it's about recognizing that we're only going to get one or two big shots at this and that we have to maximize the shots that we take whenever they present themselves, or whenever we make them possible through all of the work that goes into making those windows open. Yeah, I think that's such a good, I think that's such a good, a good note to, to close out on just the, the, you know, full complexity of what, of what we're facing there, there, you know, seems to be a lot of, a lot of myths about how, how policy gets made that um, if you just, you know, uh, really have enough smart people in the room uh, that, that will, uh, that will do things. Or if you get enough good people elected to office that will produce the kinds of policy change you want. But um, as I think you just laid out, it's, it's really <laughs> to, to uh, paraphrase um, the Obama administration, all of the above. <laughs> yeah. There's this like strange belief that like, you know, politicians do things because they think they're the right thing to do. They do. Th- there are a couple who do that but for 99% of them. They're doing the things they're forced to do. Um you know, people often, I, I just actually wrote a review, an LA review of books for y'all's book, which is an amazing book that everyone who's listening to this, I'm sure has already read. Um, but, you know, one of the things I point to in there is this weird uh, romanticization of um, the 1970s and this idea that Republicans at the time, including Richard Nixon, were like these quiet environmentalists who wanted to sign the National Environmental Policy Act, wanted to sign you know, the Clean Water, Clean Air Act, all of these things into law. Um, which all of which happened in the 1970s as a result of, you know, the, the sort of movement building that began in the 60s and the environmental movement and sort of carried forward into these things. And, the you know, the, the part of that argument that they miss is that, like, the House and the Senate and Nixon at the time were not quite environmentalists. They actually hated all of the things they were forced to pass. They were just brought to their knees by a sort of army of outside forces who were pushing an environmental agenda that they wanted nothing to do with but could not say no to. Um, and we're going to find ourselves in a position like that again soon. Um, we almost got there this year in just a few short years of electioneering becoming back sort of in vogue on the left. Um, and we're, yeah, like I said, we're going to be there again soon. And I think we have to recognize that um, it's going to take a similar kind of commitment on the left um, to outside pressure to make all of the inside game stuff possible. I mean, it's it's really, really great. And um I think it's both heartening and uh, sort of thought-provoking to hear the way that you combine these uh, pieces, Billy. Um, the outside game, the inside game, the historical analogies, um, and the years ahead. So thanks so so much for coming on to the show and um, just walking us through such a vast array of kind of perspectives and examples and um, possibilities. Thanks for having me on. I'm so glad you guys are doing the show again. This is like my one of my favorite parts of quarantine is this, this pod is back in action. That was Billy Fleming, director of the McCarg Center, my work husband, and the ultimate all-around Green New Deal influencer. You have been listening to Hot and Bothered, a climate podcast in the time of coronavirus. That's it for this episode. We are hosted by Descent Magazine and produced by Colin Kinneborough. If you like what you've been hearing, help us spread the word. You can tweet about the show using the hashtag HotBotheredClimate. And if you're able to pitch in to cover our cost of production, we are on patreon.com slash HotBotheredClimate. So until next time, stay hot, stay bothered, and stay inside. <laughs>